remain standing for our sermon text from the book of Romans. Now I'm going to read from the handout. I'm going to read the entire passage there, though the sermon is on verses 15 to 17. But give your ear to the inerrant word of God. For this reason, just as sin entered the world through one man and death entered through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law. And though sin is not reckoned where there is no law, still death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in a righteous standing. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is for everyone a righteous standing leading to life. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, bless your word. We confess and believe that you sanctify us through the truth of your word and so accomplish that in us even this Lord's day. Sanctify us by your truth, the truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if my memory is accurate, if it serves me well, today will be my first time to preach a sermon on a parenthetical statement within a parenthetical statement. Paul doesn't mind making us work at understanding him. And so again, this week, it'll be important to don your thinking caps just as we jump into Romans 5 and focus today on verses 15 to 17, which is, as I said, a, a digression within a digression, uh, an inspired detour within an inspired detour. Before we dive in, though, we need to take a look at the big picture so we can see how verses 15 to 17 fit into the, the, you know, verses 12 to 21, the, the whole paragraph, the whole section. And the first thing I want you to do is think about 
the most important events in world history? What comes to mind? Uh, what would you put at the top of the list of the most significant events in, the, in human history? Now, if, if you've been reading through your Bible this year, starting in Genesis, you might want to propose the flood or the, the Tower of Babel or maybe the Exodus, the most important redemptive event in, in the Old Testament. If, if you want to keep it more basic, more practical perhaps, you, you might suggest that the invention of the wheel or the discovery of fire, something like that, are among the most important events in history. Well, if you like war history, especially if you're a Westerner and you like war history, you might point to Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon River, which precipitated a civil war that made Julius Caesar a permanent or lifelong dictator. Or more recently, you may want to remind us of the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century, led by William, William of Normandy, who, whose decisive victory at the Battle of Hastings altered the course of the British Isles. History, future. If you're a late medieval scholar, you could be thinking of the social, economic, and cultural effects that Gutenberg's printing press has had on the world. We could, we could, we could go on for days, right? Listing history's most momentous moments. But every event we might think to put on that list would pale, it would pale in comparison to the two historical events that Paul refers to in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Do you know what these two historical events are? Adam's act of disobedience and the Lord Jesus Christ's act of obedience. Or we could put it this way, the sinful act of the first Adam and the righteous act of the last Adam. These two events go at the very top of the list and no other event even comes close to rivaling them. Not even close. These are the two pivotal points of history because their effects are worldwide, cosmic, and eternal. What's interesting, though, is that these two events also have opposite effects on creation, on, on the cosmos, especially on the people they affect, even opposite eternal consequences. So in verses 18 and 19, that's next week's, or you know, next time we're going to look at that, but in verses 18 and 19, Paul summarizes the spiritual and eternal consequences of these two events, and at the same time, he highlights their oppositeness. Do you see that? Look at, at verses 18 and 19 with me. So then, Paul says, and I'm reading from, from the outline, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is for everyone a righteous standing leading to life. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verses 12 to 21 then are about Death in the first man and life in the second man. So let's go back to the beginning 
this passage and get our minds wrapped around the flow of the passage. It's a difficult, difficult flow to understand. Verse 12 teaches that Adam introduced sin and death into the world. Okay? Through him came sin, and through that sin came death. But it all flows from Adam and his act of disobedience. Sin reigns in humanity, and, and sin takes the throne of every human heart at the moment of conception. That's the consequence of Adam's sin that we see even in that very first verse. But you'll notice on your handout that at the beginning of verse 13, there's a parenthesis. You see that? The New King James, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, puts a dash and a parenthesis to show this is breaking. Paul's breaking his thought here. And so he breaks off his thought at the end of verse 12, mid-sentence. It's not grammatically even a complete sentence yet. To talk about something else before he finishes that thought all the way down in verse 18. And so in verses 13 and 14, Paul explains what he meant at the end of verse 12 when he said that all have sinned. All right, we talked about that last week. So he got to the end, he said, and all have sinned. All sinned. And he thinks, okay, I need to explain that in 13 and 14. And that's, that was last week's sermon. But it gets more complicated because when he gets to the end of verse 14, the end of that parenthetical explanation of the end of verse 12, when he gets to the end... He says something at the end of verse 14 that causes him to go off on another aside, another digression or detour. So at the end of verse 14, what's he do? He, he, what did he do there at the end of verse 14? Do you see it? He compared Adam to Jesus, who is a type of, of, or figure of the one to come. And right after Paul said that, he thought to himself, oh, oh no. Uh, you know, I, I really need to, I need to qualify that statement. Uh, Adam and Jesus are alike in significant ways. Of course, Jesus is the fulfillment, the antitype of the type. Uh, the Adam, Adam points to Jesus. So they're significantly similar. But before I talk about those similarities, I need to mention some fundamental differences. Okay? So in verses 15 to 17... He, he inserts another parenthetical. He elaborates on the differences between Adam and Christ. And do you see how I put that in brackets? So there's parenthesis uh, from 13 to the end of 17. And then within that, from 15 to 17, there are brackets showing that it's a parenthetical within a parenthetical. So in verse 15, he talks about their different deeds. In verses 16 and 17, he discusses the different results of their deeds, so the consequences of those deeds. And if you look at all three verses together, we see, that, we see the different power that their deeds have or produce. Okay, Different deeds, different results, different power. But before we work through these points, I want to go off on a short tangent of my own that is, I believe, related, and talk about whether it's important to believe that Adam was a historical figure. Many are convinced that the Bible doesn't require us to believe in a particular man named Adam as the original human being who actually walked on the earth. Some say that Adam, in the book of Genesis and in Paul's letters, is just a mythical person 
who maybe represents the symbolic of all mankind, something like that. And there's a growing tendency, even among uh, evangelicals, certainly among modern theologians, a growing tendency to dismiss Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden as a religious story or a mythology that didn't really happen in history. It's not necessary theologically that it actually happened. And, and they'll tell you that it's, it's true myth, it's true mythology, it's, it's theologically accurate and powerful and inspired even even though it didn't really happen in space and time the way the Bible says it happened, or when the Bible says it happened, for that matter. One of the things they point out is that a myth is a story that tells a religious truth. And in this way, myths are different from fables or legends, right? So those aren't the right words to use to describe what they're wanting to do with this text. A fable is an imaginary story with a moral, like Aesop's fables, which include talking animals. A legend is a heroic saga, like the tales of King Arthur, which involve larger-than-life characters. So fables are moral tales, legends are heroic tales, and myths are religious or theological tales. Christian myths are religious stories that supposedly embody timeless theological truths. And the most important feature of, of myths for many so-called Bible scholars is that myths are not meant to be taken literally or historically, right? That's how the argument works in a nutshell. So many have therefore, chosen to categorize the early chapters of Genesis, especially where Adam and Eve are involved, as mythology in order to avoid the fact that it really happened the way it says it happened and when it says it happened. But the problem with doing this is that there's no evidence in the inspired text itself that the author was intending to write mythology rather than what we call history. And... It's also beyond doubt that Jesus and Paul believed that early Genesis was, in fact, a record of historical facts. They believed that Adam was a human being who existed, as Jesus puts it in Mark 10:6, at the beginning of creation. So it puts the beginning of humanity and the beginning of creation in the same place. And by the way, many of the scholars, the, the, even ones that call them evan, themselves evangelical, will say, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus and Paul thought. They thought that Adam was a historical man, but we can forgive them since they lacked the understanding and the knowledge that we have, and it's not pertinent to what they were trying to say and the theological truths that they were, that they were conveying, Okay. But I would say that the real proof that Adam existed as a historical man at the beginning of creation is the parallel that Paul draws between the person of Christ and the person, the historical person of Jesus. What we say about one, we must say about the other. If Christ was historical, then Adam must have been. Or if Adam is mythological, then so 
was Christ, perhaps. He need not be historical. Now, as you know, virtually everyone agrees that Jesus was a specific historical figure. Even unbelievers will recognize that. He, he was born a Jew in the days of Herod when Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. He grew up in Nazareth, and he died on a Roman cross just outside of Jerusalem. As Christians, we would add that we know that he died at the hands of Pontius Pilate and rose from the dead on the third day. These are actual historical events. And our faith depends on there being a historical event, that they are historical events. Jesus really entered into history and died on a cross to undo the effects of Adam's sin. Therefore, Adam's sin must have been real, historical. The account of Adam's fall in Genesis 3 must be literally, the text must literally be telling us about a real event that happened in space and time. You see, a mythological sin committed by a mythological Adam would only need a mythological atonement performed by a mythological Christ. We, just need a, we would just need another story to undo it, not necessarily one that happened, a story that represents what happened in history. We just need a myth to answer the myth. You don't need a historical Christ to provide a historical atonement on a historical cross in order to answer the problem of a mythological fall by a mythological Adam. It would be like saying that Jesus came to save us from the sin that the white witch in Narnia introduced into the world, right? No, the, the white witch is a fictional character and her wickedness is overcome by the righteous act of a fictional hero. But Christ didn't come to overcome a fictional character's sin. He came to atone for the historical sin of the historical Adam and his historical descendants. According to Paul's logic in Romans 5, and we could say the same thing about 1 Corinthians 15, but according to Paul's logic, the way he puts Adam and Christ together, if Christ is historical, then Adam is historical. If Adam is mythical, then Christ himself need only be a myth. He, he, he doesn't need to be anything more than a myth for it to work out theologically at the mythological level. We also know that Adam must have been a his, historical because the downstream effects of his sin in history demand that Adam sin in history. The, the sin that flows from Adam is, is very real, observable dateable. The pervasiveness and the consistency of sin throughout history, which we went into last week in some depth, it cannot be explained by a mythical transgression of a myth mythical first parent. The only explanation for the universal wickedness we see throughout all of history and throughout all the earth, and including in our own hearts, is that all humans inherit the sin and the corruption of our first father, Adam. If, sin, if Adam were not a real person, this explanation would have no explanatory power. Right? Original sin would have no... It, original sin must be a historical reality. Otherwise, it means nothing and it explains nothing. In verses 12 to 14, which I preached on last week, Adam, if you just look there, 
you see that Adam functions in that passage, in that paragraph, on the same historical plane as who? As Moses and the law and Christ. So if Moses, the law, and Christ are real in verses 12 to 14, then so was Adam. Or the logic is, it completely breaks down. The argument doesn't work. The theology doesn't work that, that Paul is communicating. And this fits, by the way, with the most natural reading of early Genesis. As, as you can, you know, the evidence for that is the way Genesis has been read throughout the millennia. It, it uses historical narrative to recount the story of creation and Adam and Eve and their descendants, some of their descendants. Historical narrative that is replete with, with dates, chronologies, intertwined chronologies and timestamps. It's history. So there's a growing, we need to talk about this because there's a growing tendency in the church, in evangelical scholarship, to subordinate God's word to human wisdom, to compromise biblical revelation so that it fits better with modern sensibilities, to replace childlike faith in scripture, even when we can't reconcile everything, with an overweening knowledge about what we can about what can or can't be true when we approach the Bible. But Paul is clear. When he says that sin came into the world through one man, he's talking about a historical figure who had a historical wife named Eve. Now that we've established that Adam and, and, and Jesus are historical men who walked the earth as covenant representatives of those who are spiritually united to them. Let's see what Paul says about their differences. First, Paul highlights the differences in their deeds, their actions. Adam's sinful act was a trespass, a trespass of God's law. God revealed his law to Adam in the garden. He gave him commands. And Adam trespassed. On the other hand, Christ's righteous act, Paul says, is a gift. Yeah, that's the contrast there. Trespass and gift to humanity. Verse 15, but, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? The obedience of Jesus Christ all the way to the cross is a gift. Think of it. it. It's a gift. And you need to think of it that way. It's a gift to God's people. It's a gift to everyone who unites himself or herself to Jesus by faith. Adam's trespass is a curse to humanity. Christ's righteous act is a gift. And the difference between these two deeds it goes all the way down, the difference does. At the heart of each deed, the, the motivation was completely, fundamentally different. What do I mean by that? Well, Adam's trespass was a conscious act of self-aggrandizement. Adam's sin was all about Adam. It was... 
it was an ambitious, self-centered, and self-glorifying act. Adam was a mere man, is a mere man, but he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to be God, and so he crowned himself God. But the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ was a conscious act of self-sacrifice. His righteous deed was all about the will of his Father and the salvation of his people. That's what was on his mind. He was a humble, selfless, and God-glorifying. His was a, a selfless, humble, and God-glorifying act. Jesus was, in his very nature, God, Paul says. And yet, Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped and held on to tightly. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you see the difference? Adam is a man who tried to become God. Jesus is God who gave up his divine privileges to become man and die on a cross for Adam and his sinful descendants. Those are the two acts. Notice I didn't say Jesus gave up his divinity or his godness. He gave up his divine prerogative, privileges. Adam was trying to grab onto divine prerogatives. Jesus gave up the advantage, as one translation puts it, the advantage of being God. Adam's disobedience is an act of pride and self-exaltation. Christ's obedience is an act of humility and making himself nothing, as, Peter, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Christ's deed of dying was not simply obedience to the Father. Primarily it was, but it was also compassion on us. Whereas Adam was only thinking about himself, Jesus was thinking about his Father and those that would that he would unite to himself by faith. One of, the, one of the benefits of meditating on this, on the differences between these two heads of humanity, is that they remind us of the war that rages within, within every believer. If you belong to Christ, you're united to him and not to Adam anymore. You can only have one Covenant head, federal head, covenant representative, Adam or Christ. You only have one at a time. If you're a, if you, if you're a believer, if you belong to Jesus, then he, you're united to him, not to Adam. You're a new creation in Christ, Paul says. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old Adam is dead. He no, no longer lives in you because the new man the, the second man, the last Adam, has come to live and reign in you. And yet, and yet, we know about Romans 7, right? We know from personal experience and from the scriptures that the corruption we inherited from Adam lingers. Okay, Adam's dead, but 
he lingers. We still commit acts of self-aggrandizement. We're, we're ambitious, self-centered, self-glorifying, prideful. Just like our first father, Adam, we want to be God because we want his prerogatives for ourselves. But the calling of the Christian is to put off the old man and to put on the new. Ephesians 4, remember? You know, Paul's talking to Christians who have put off the old man objectively. Like they're Christians. They're in the new man. But he says to put off. You know, it's, it's a, in this life, it's a continual battle. Now, but what we need to know, you need to know, if you're a believer, then it's objectively true that you have put off the old Adam. He's dead. And you've put on the last Adam, the second man who is alive in you. One of the main applications of this sermon is for us to believe that and to think about that and meditate on it and to reckon it, as Paul says, reckon it as true. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2.20. Part of what he means when he says that you've been crucified with Christ, fellow Christians. You've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer you who lives, it's no longer the old you, it's no longer the old Adam, the old self who lives, but it is Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in this body of flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you, Galatians 2.20. That objective reality, it's, the reality is that Adam is dead, Christ is alive. And the goal of the Christian is to make that objective reality more and more a daily, personal, subjective, internal reality. Okay? The definition of sanctification, one definition, could be simply becoming less like the first Adam and more like the last Adam. Less self-centered and more self-sacrificial. Less self-glorifying and more God-glorifying. Less disobedient, more obedient. The two deeds of these two men were opposite. And we can see that even as we reflect the, the, two, the, the acts of those two men in us. Even though we're united to Christ, we still see both coming out practically. But our task, our goal as Christians is that by God's grace, we kill the first Adam, put off the first Adam, and put on more and more the second man, the last Adam. So the deeds were opposite, and so were the results. Second point, verse 16 says that Adam's deed resulted in Condemnation, while Christ's deed resulted in a righteous standing before God. Paul writes in verse 16, And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift. Or you could say in response to the many trespasses came the gift which is Jesus' act of going to the cross, his obedient act of going to the cross, resulting in what? A righteous standing, a righteous standing before God. 
the consequence of Adam's sin is condemnation, or we could call it legal guilt before God. Legal guilt in, the, in God's cosmic courtroom. In Adam, we stand guilty before God. And, and this, this legal guilt, it's imputed to every human being. It's, it's credited to the spiritual account of every person at the moment of conception. Only person exempt from that, only exception is Jesus, of course. We stood condemned before God. We, we came under his condemnation at the very moment our biological parents brought us into this world. That was, that was the gift they gave us, right? That's what we give to our children. That's what we pass on is, that, is Adam's condemnation, his legal guilt. So right when you became a human, human being in your mother's womb, Adam's sin was counted as yours because you were in solidarity with him. In union with him, everyone, Paul says, is by nature a child of wrath. Because that by nature means in Adam. In Adam, we're children of wrath. But do you see the gospel counterpoint to this in verse 16? The consequence of Christ's righteousness is a righteous standing before God. Legal righteousness in his cosmic courtroom. And this legal righteousness is also imputed to every believer. It's credited to the spiritual account of every Christian at the moment of conversion. The new birth. Believers stand righteous before God. We come into uh, his grace at the very moment God brings us into the kingdom of God through the new birth, right when you became a new creation in Christ, his righteousness was counted as yours. Every Christian is, by grace, a child of God, no longer a child of wrath. In verse 17, the result of Adam's sinful deed is that death reigns. And so we might expect, the, the, you know, the counterpoint to this, we might expect Paul to say that the result of Christ's righteous deed is that what reigns? Life reigns. But that's not what he says. He actually says that we reign in life. Okay, so the life concept is there in the counterpoint, but it's we reign in life. Look with me at verse 17. If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So the contrast that Paul is making here is the difference between a person before and after he is converted to Christ. When you were in Adam, death reigned over you and in you, you were in bondage to sin. But now you're a free man or a free woman or a free boy or a free girl. And you're not only free, you're also a reigning king. Okay? Don't miss that in this text. We might miss that if we're reading through our Bibles and we don't slow down to see what Paul's saying. In the old kingdom of darkness... You were chained up in the king's dungeon. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you've become a king yourself. 
sin's kingship made you a slave. Christ's kingship makes you a king, a co-heir. You, you reign with Christ. So he, he's the capital K king. We're lowercase k kings. Finally, we see, and this is related. These last two points are related. But finally, we see in today's passage that the two deeds of these two men differed greatly in power. Paul goes to great lengths to show that the power and the scope of Christ's gift is far greater than Adam's trespass. Two times in this paragraph alone, uh, he, he makes this point with certain verbiage. He, he says, how much more? How much more? In verses 15 and 17. Adam sinned, but how much more did Christ obey? Adam's trespass resulted in death, but how much more does Christ's gift result in life? The, the point that is, that Paul, is that Christ's deed completely overcomes and undoes, unravels, reverses every negative effect of Adam's deed for those who are in union with Christ by faith. The, the two deeds, you see, are not equal in power. The consequences are not equally powerful. We, we could say equally eternal, because eternal, there's no such thing as less eternal, right? But that's what, what we're talking, what Paul's focusing on here, what we're talking about is the power, the, the internal strength, if you will, of these two acts in themselves and in their consequences. Condemnation in Adam results in punishment that fits the sin. Sinners get exactly what they deserve. But our righteous standing is undeserved grace that overflows, Paul says. It, it, it gives us infinitely more than we deserve. And the superior power of the grace of God in Christ means that you're not enslaved to the power of sin anymore. One of the lies from the devil is that you are. One of, the, one of the lies from the enemy is that you're still just a slave. But the New Testament is clear, and we talked about this too last week, that we sin because we want to as believers. There, there's this mystery that we, we know we won't be perfect in this life, but we also know that we never have to sin, right? We can't push either of those in, in absolute ways so that they contradict the other. We're not slaves anymore the way we were before we transferred to the new man, the second man, the last Adam. Every believer's story is like the story of Lot in Genesis 14. Lot was captured by King Keterleomer, remember? And there was nothing Lot could do about it. This was a superpower. Uh, he, he was a powerless victim, you know, a powerless captive to the powerful Keterleomer. Uh, you, you know, we could, we could flesh this 
story out and say, well, he was maybe in the wrong place, and that was why it happened. But let's just focus on Lot's powerlessness in this moment because of the power of Keterleomer. There was nothing Lot could do about it. But there was something that Uncle Abram could do about it because Abram had superior power. Keterleomer was weak in comparison to Abram's strength. And when Abram conquered Keterleomer and his band of thug kings, Lot went from being Keterleomer's chained up prisoner and slave to having a share in the power of Abram, who was the mightiest man around. Beloved in Christ, you're no longer in the clutches of Adam's sin. The penalty of Adam's sin has been paid on your behalf, and its power over you has been decisively destroyed at the cross. Sin's guilt and grip, sin's penalty and power have been conquered by the righteous act of the seed of Abram. Death no longer reigns in your members because Christ defeated death and sin on the cross for you. And so the question is, are you living in the victory that is yours in Christ? Are you reckoning that victory as yours? That's what Paul's going to say we should do in in chapter 6. Or do you prefer the life of a slave? Imagine if Lot had turned around at the end of Genesis 14 and gone and decided, you know what, really, that wasn't so bad after. I'm going to go back to, to serve the defeated king, Keterleomer, who, you know, who had tucked his tail and ran. I'm going to go back and serve him, be his slave, be his prisoner. What if he had done that right after Uncle Abram rescued him from Keterleomer's grip? Well, that's what you're doing when you jump headlong back into the sin that Christ has freed you from. You don't have to. There's, there's power. You have power now that's greater than that previous power that had a grip on you. Fellow believer, Jesus has won the decisive victory. He has won the decisive victory over the sin of pornography on your behalf. He's freed you from the grip of lust. He's won the decisive victory over the sin of deception. He's freed you from the grip of a lying tongue. He's won the decisive victory over the sins of anger and discontentment and despair and envy and resentment and bitterness and impatience and man-pleasing He's freed you from the grip of the enemy and his power. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, the reign of sin and death have been decisively defeated for you and in you. Believe that he has done this for you. Reckon that he has accomplished this in you. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending a second man, the second man, Jesus Christ, so that we could be rescued from our enslavement to sin and death and its eternal consequences. Thank you for giving us the new birth and giving us faith in Jesus. And thank you for the power that we have in him. The, the freedom that we have in him from sin's penalty and power. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to live out, to live uh, from and to live out of that victory that is ours in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.